Okay, let's talk about for a minute where we are because I think we're in a wrong way of approaching things. That is, it's why are there so many dark glasses if I turn this way? Okay, so I, what I, I'm worrying about the fact that everybody is spending a lot of energy on a nice topic. I would love to know the answer myself to what extent Merleau-Ponty is an idealist and what kind of idealist, but it's premature without having his whole story about the mind and the body and how they're related to the perceptual world and what what the brain is doing and, and what science is doing. We can't even do, deal with that. And it's part of his fault that he has launched into this discussion of the crypto mechanism, right, you know, where, we're, where we are, utterly prematurely. And so we're, I'm not going to talk about it today. I was going to, but uh, people in office hours on, and uh, graduate students and teaching assistants and me all agree that we should stop thinking about idealism or go back and read those very important pages about the crypto mechanism and how we get from the perceptual world to the universe at the end when we know as much as we can about what he's up to. And so we're going to go right on to the phantom limb, which shouldn't be a shock to anybody since that's what we're supposed to be talking about today anyway. If there's a big chunk in the Phantom Limb chapter, by the way, which I'm going to stick later to. I had the funny idea walking over here that if, if I were a good copy editor, or if I knew a good philosophically informed copy editor, I think I'd give them the manuscript of the Phenomenology of Perception and say, uh, somebody's thinking of publishing this, could you turn this into a sensible book? And then we have something like the Phenomenology of Perception 2 in which things were where they belonged. For instance, not only is I think that piece on, on crypto mechanism just utterly premature, and not, but right in the middle, I hadn't really thought about it, of this talk about the phantom limb, which is going along very well, and he's doing fine, and I'm going to talk about it as long as we need to, because it's very important. He gets himself into the position of finally wanting to bring in the, the psychoanalytical dimension at the bottom of 95. Then he starts saying, and you can usually tell when he's lost it, very metaphorical and general, without any examples, stuff. And he goes on like that from 95, clear up to uh, 99. I'll, I'll tell you when we get there. Well, I'll tell you now. Starting with on 95, within, in that way, uh, and then he's going on and on like that up to... I have various views about where he starts being sensible again, but I think up to the bottom of 99, then he's coming back to what he's really talking about. Now, why does the severing of the afferent nerves banish the phantom limb? Meanwhile, he's given you these murky pages. He's got a very interesting view about uh, psychopathology, and it's in the Cogito chapter. So this omniscient editor I'm now envisaging just should take that and put it back there where it belongs. So we'll take up this piece when we get to the interesting story. He's got his own view of, of what the unconscious is and what repression is and everything, all very 
original and uh, plausible. But now, for this time, we're going to do something down to earth and solid, and that is the body and mechanistic physiology. We're going to do the phantom limb story, starting on 84. Uh, I just sort of plunged in and started talking. I should stop for a second to, to see if anybody has any problems or anything going on. That, isn't it wonderful? Everybody's got a place to sit, almost everybody. Are there empty seats back there as usual? Yes. Anyway, yeah, so anybody who wants to sit can do it by going back there. Uh, now, and, and, and the books are there, and, and what's the story with the primacy of perception? Those of you who want to read it have found copies in the philosophy library that you can Xerox from, and maybe even bought it. Anybody found any place to buy it? Uh, I haven't either, except the one copy I got. You can buy it at Amazon. You can buy it in, at Amazon. Okay. So, yeah, and so everything is good. Let's go back to this. One, for, well, one further background thing. I mentioned maybe, and I'll just mention this now too. There was a very interesting, though looking at it last night again, not quite as interesting as I remembered it, uh, uh, NOVA program on the mind and brain with all based on the work of Ramachandran, this very, very interesting neuroscientist. And it starts with a discussion of phantom limb and his new discoveries about phantom limbs. And for about 15 minutes on phantom limb, it gives you some sort of background, but it doesn't mesh with Merleau-Ponty nearly as much as I thought. And the most interesting experiment is so quickly and, uh, explained that I can't really understand it, so I don't know what it shows. But I'll put it on reserve anyway in, uh, in, in VHS, in video, uh, in, in the philosophy library, and, and you can look at it if you want. It's got a lot of other interesting pathologies in it besides phantom limb. Let's see, what are they? The syndrome, Capas is a syndrome where people think that they are only mothers and fathers and wives are, are, are people impersonating their own mothers and fathers and wives and not really them. They're interesting things. People at the end, people with epileptic religious experiences, but before those two, there's something more down to earth and solid. What is it? Hmm. Hmm. Ah, blindside, which is very interesting to us. Lots on blindside. That is uh, the way people can unconsciously, nonetheless, cope with the world and get around in it just as if they could see it. And so for those two, for the first half, it's worth looking at. Okay, now, what we're going to do, the phantom limb. And that starts out where uh, he starts out with uh, the wrong-headed view which I just repeat because it's important to keep repeating it and it's important to keep repeating it because it's the view that everybody holds. It isn't some minority fringe kooky view. It, it's a very, very popular and according to Merleau-Ponty and Walter Freeman at least and maybe other people too but I don't know them, uh, a wrong-headed view namely that the world is a kind of transmitter and the sense organs are receivers and transducers and then the, and the information is then passively, you know, they, the world impinges on the sense, sense organs and that sends the uh, energy which contains the information about the world up to several stages in the brain till finally magically in the last stage it becomes us and our experience of things. He doesn't like that. It's about six lines down. 
where it was I'm now on 84 where it was desired to insert the organism in the universe of objects and thereby close off that universe it was necessary that is put everything in the, in the world of objects it was necessary to trans and this is Descartes translate the functioning of the body into the language of the in itself and discover beneath behavior the linear dependence of stimulator and receptor receptor and receiver and that's and that the linear is uh, jargon that uh, Walter Freeman uses too that linear is just his name for the wrong sort of causality where it comes from out there to here to higher centers and so forth and what's missing in that story in some form or other is this kind of feedback loop in which what the, the sense organs are already attuned to as he says looking for Walter Freeman says that what is significant and important to the organism at that point that's part of the feedback it isn't that this is the sense organ just sits there passively and collects whatever comes in it's uh, and another part of the feedback is what he once or twice calls the intentional arc there are these very important ideas in Merleau-Ponty that are so basic and important that he never actually thematizes them he just takes them as his way of dealing with them the intentional arc is that as I gain experience with what is significant in the world that changes the way I pick up information from the world so that the world I don't need to have a representation of the world the world is its own representation and I don't need to update my representation of the world what gets updated is the world looks different to me the more I learn about it I think it's in this, this section is it or well, no it may have been I was reading Gibson where uh, we where he says after the child's been born fire looks different to the child is that in, is that oh, that's here the, 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 the flame becomes repulsive yeah right okay yeah right okay yeah it's in there and that's the intentional arc that says that the significance of things gets back in the world in the look of things so there's no you can't have this linear view but there's stuff out there which just comes in one I have to be set to receive it two what's out there gets changed by what experience I've had that's going along in the background of what he's talking about that reminds me of something I want to say about the lecture coming up on Tuesday um, because I discovered in office hours and in talking that though I talk about Gibson every once in a while and he talks about the gestaltus a lot he never explains and I never explain in some kind of systematic clear way what what who the gestaltists were what they were up to and who Gibson is and what he was up to and how they're both related to each other in Merleau-Ponty well we're lucky we've got Rick one of the, one of the TAs who was a psychology major as an undergraduate and a Gibsonian and knows that stuff so on Tuesday Rick is going to talk about these things is there anything you're they're supposed to read in preparation for I this? About it, I think better just to stick to the Merleau-Ponty that's what I think I mean I don't think we should be getting enough trouble it's but a lot easier reading Gibson and the Gestaltus but this is what we also need to Heidegger too so because students yeah. yeah the drawing on Heidegger I thought you were but we got to be careful again how many have had uh, being in time course so you've got 
you got half the people who know what you're going to say and half the people who need to well, know. Well, no, they don't. Well, they don't because it's in relation to okay. the Okay, so, so we're going to go bring in Heidegger and tell you enough about Heidegger, which is, after all, as much as an important part of the background of this book as, as Gestalt psychology is. I mean, being in the world is this notion he has all over the place, though he's changed it a lot from Heidegger. There's the basic, basic idea is still the same. Okay. So there's this wrong dominant view, and then he goes on to tell you what he thinks is the right view on 86, the next page at the bottom. What's wrong with it is, well, I think I listed once in here that I thought was neat. Three ways, these three things wrong with it. First, I'll say it my way, and then I'll see if that's what I said in my notes. I mean, I, I, to repeat what I said this just a minute ago that was wrong with it is that it's got this uh, view of us as passive receivers of the world out there who then use our sense organs to get in the information and then construct a representation which we then have to update as we get more information whereas that's wrong for two reasons remember I said one because what comes into the sense organs is already determined by what we're looking for what we're set for what we're as he puts it in here attuned to and what we're attuned to is already determined by our past experience which and this is the other important point isn't something we add to our incoming uh, data but the world itself the perceptual world changes its its appearance on the basis of our experience so again we don't need to represent represent what the flame means to use the example in here the flame comes to look dangerous that's all not not the linear and receptive view of how we're related to the world. That's the point. Well, it's not very convenient. It isn't? Why well, not? I mean, any, any receiver yeah. is built to be attuned to one kind of signal. Uh, a television doesn't pick up any... Okay. Well, let me add a third. But, but partly I, what I was saying was not quite that, though. I did say that, and that you're right, it wasn't clear enough. And this attuning is changing depending on what one, what, I, what I'm looking for, and two, what I've already experienced, so that I'm going to be attuned to the candle flame differently if I'm, if I'm, and to the heat when I'm warm or cold and so forth. That's, that's, it's not a fixed attunement like the radio tuned to these set of stations, period. It's an attunement which is going to change constantly. So that maybe makes it all right. But the, other, the other thing, the other problem is that anybody who believes in the receiver linear model grants, could grant as a psychological or phenomenological data that you experience the flame as repulsive or as threatening. The question is how, given the assumption that all that actually reaches you from that flame, which is over there, is light. Good, good. So That's how, how do you experience it immediately well, as me, uh, if you don't touch it? Okay, well I think now yeah, we're going to get off in a direction I guess it's okay to go. Uh, of course, you'd have to have a brain story that was not a receiver brain story because, and, but you, there'd be two stages which fit together for him and uh, fit together for me because we've got Walter Freeman, but, uh, he, but he's already got a glimmer of the brain story. But as, what you need is two things, a phenomenological description, which is what he gets from the Gestaltists and what Gibson gets from him, 
of the way the world changes its appearance as I learn more and more about it and its significance to me and what I'm interested in. That's the first thing. And, of course, Alvin is right, that would be magical, even in a sense too magical for Merleau-Ponty, uh, if you didn't tell a brain story of how it was possible, given that there is this, all there is, is an organism being bombarded with energy from the world, that we could have this experience instead of the what would seem to be the sensible Cartesian one that we uh, make, we put all this information together in the brain and build up a representation in the brain. Uh, and that wouldn't, by the way, probably give you the right phenomenology. I mean, Descartes didn't think that flames looked different after people were burned by them, or if he did, he didn't think it was important. So we need a, we need a, a brain story that will give you the phenomenological description of perception, and uh, we need to see how that could happen. Okay, well, but whenever I talk about Walter Freeman, I feel bad because I start using a bunch of jargon that I don't fully understand myself, but let me try it again, because it's so important. The picture Walter Freeman has is that on the basis of my experience of, say, being burnt by candles and nourished by uh, carrots, he, he does uh, rabbits, uh, so uh, I make connections of a traditional sort, what's called Hebbian connections. So the, the connection between the rabbit smell and the rabbit taste gets reinforced. But that's not important. That's what's interesting and hard to explain. But the whole brain gets tuned, is constantly going into a kind of chaotic mode and then settling into certain minimal energy states, which are called attractors. And which minimal energy states it turns it, it settles into is based on its experience. So with experiencing carrots and discovering that they're good to eat, not only does, does it get these normal sort of connections between carrots and good things, it gets, uh, now I, I, it's hard for me to say how it does this, but Freeman says he can see it on his oscilloscope when he's plugged into the rabbit's brain, it, it forms a new attractor. That is, a, a, that there is a certain least energy position that the, that part of the brain goes into and it adds a new attractor for every new category it gets and for, for celery and for carrots and so forth and that modifies the attractor landscape. Now this is this jargon I can't cash out very well. And the picture of it is now that when some stimulus comes in, because as Alva's right, I mean that, that, that is the physical level of what actually happens, it puts the brain into an attractor landscape and uh, it, it, depending on what uh, significance this input has had for the organism before, it picks out some particular attractor and that is the, that's how the organism recognizes the carrot, the rabbit does, and recognizes it as something to eat. And it does. What's, what's important about that 
is that it depends on whether the rabbit is hungry, it depends on the past experience of the rabbit, and the input, and this is the hard part, and I can't explain it very well, uh, if, if need be. I, I would say let's get Walter Freeman over here to explain it, but unfortunately he's so deep into it and so far from where we are that whenever he explains it, I gave two seminars with him, but I never really understood it any better than I do now. But, there, you know, with it, but the input that puts the brain into this global energy state, this attractor landscape, in which there are these minimum, that input gets thrown away, as he puts it. That is, what, it, what, what the original stuff from the world is just enough to set up this global phenomenon which contains in it the information as to what sort of things have been good and bad for that sort of animal under those conditions. And that's what makes it a not linear, not a normal picture of how the brain works. It, it, on the perceptual level, it's like saying, well, when you see something, there's some array of energy on your retina, and that's going to have a certain it, distorted uh, shape, and it's going to have all kinds of changes with changes in lighting and so forth. But that's not important. That what's important is some invariant in that that sets the whole system, the global system, into some recognition or other. And the way the thing actually, the, what do you call it, the stimulus error, uh, is to think that somehow that, the, the way the thing hits your retina plays an important role in the processing. He thinks it just triggers the processing. That's very different, very important. Now, if you want somebody to explain it to you, we might set up an extra session in which, Eric, would you, could you explain this any better to people if we set up an extra session to do it? It's, it's so complex that uh, What's that? I think it's so complex that it's not possible to explain it better than you can explain it. Okay, well then, uh, I won't, then I won't make you do it. Yeah. No, this is a nice causal story at the neurophysiological level. I think this is what Alvin was saying, but how do you get from the causal story, which you've get now given us uh, right. uh, with Walter Freeman, yeah. to the fact that it's now the landscape has a, a appearance, a phenomenal appearance such as beautiful. I see, I see. Yeah. That, no, that's yeah, nobody knows. That's, that's the qualia question. So there's two separate questions. Freeman thinks he's got a story so complicated that neither Eric nor I could explain it very well, of how the organism picks up the significance of what it's dealing with directly and is attuned to the significance of what it's dealing with directly. Directly in that the brain already just goes into a state on the basis of the input that can, that, that, and that state was formed by its previous experience with the significance of the input. But it's not like a representation. It's not like some description of the input plus an additional factor, namely good to eat. It is something that's tied directly up with the action so that when it, when it has that kind of input, it gets set to go and eat it. So, so Freeman has a way of trying to describe how the brain can pick up directly the significance of what it encounters in the world and how that's going to change as it encounters more things in the world. All this, it fits the phenomenology, the Merleau-Ponty phenomenology. 
And he says, and this is part of the confusion, and therefore he's explained consciousness. You've heard him, you think that. Anyway, he's, consciousness has these two aspects, picking up the meaning and picking up the qualia or the feeling, or, you know, the, the sensuous experience, the conscious experience of, of say, uh, smelling carrots. He doesn't make that distinction. He's happy just to say, well, we, we picked up the significance, what more do you want? And somebody like John Searle says, well, what we really want is what, what's the conscious qualia aspect of all this? And it isn't as if Walter thinks that's a good question and he thinks he doesn't have an answer. He doesn't really hear the question. He just thinks that's a non-question. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's the best I can say about it. Yeah, that, that, that's it, your experience? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just to clarify what you said, so Freeman is giving the causal story of the intentional art. Yes, and, good. And what's interesting, which you haven't mentioned yet, is that it, it's not bringing into the picture an associationist understanding of memory, for example. That's right. Well, so I, I, there's I, learning, but it's the learning is in this kind of... That's right. It's not a representationalist or, a, or it's, not an, it's not an empiricist notion of learning, which that didn't work out because these impressions don't call each other up until you've already recognized them, according to Merleau-Ponty. And it isn't an intellectualist version, which I was really giving more of an example of. You're not building up a representation of the world in which you're sort of having, you have a description and you add more and more information you're changing the world and how it shows up for you uh, shows up for you is this interesting Weasley term that Heidegger and Freeman and Merleau-Ponty like shows up for you you could say well shows up as significant and then you'd be in their dimension shows up for you could mean with what qualia then they would just say who cares uh, okay all of that is right but not only is the view for the fits the intentional arc but it also fits, but I haven't been saying this well because I don't know how to say it any better, is it fits the uh, constant, the organisms trying to get a maximum grip. Remember that story, which that's the other secret deep thing in Merleau-Ponty that I keep stressing. And I found a lot of places in the Fan of Lynn this time through where in every sort of metaphor, he's always talking about seeking maximum grip and never using the expression. It only is used about three times in all of being in time. But it's part of the Walter Freeman picture of it that the organism is always seeking what is significant for it and seeking to get a better, clearer, more, uh, more successful grip on what's important to it. And, it's, and that's why the information coming in is always already stored in terms of its importance for the organism. So it's got a combination of the intentional arc and the maximum grip. The seeking for the maximum grip is what determines what information gets built into the perception uh, by way of the intentional arc. I think those are the two most important notions in Merleau-Ponty and interestingly enough the least mentioned and interesting enough, I just can't resist saying this, Merleau-Ponty has a theory that every philosopher's really most important ideas he never talks about because they sort of are in the background coloring everything. He says about that about Husserl. Well, all you have to do is transfer that and say that about Merleau-Ponty and you've got what I was saying. And you, how many have read Sean Kelly's paper on uh, seeing things in Merleau-Ponty? Well, when you do, you'll see that Sean is using that. He's claiming that... Some third thing, which I haven't mentioned, which is his favorite gimmick in Merleau-Ponty, is hardly ever mentioned and sometimes even contradicted. Okay, yeah. 
you think Ronald Hunter himself would buy Wall Street's causal story that you just gave, at least the part not including, not addressing the qualia issue? Yes, I think he would buy it. I think he'd love it. Because he's trying all to give a brain story every once in a while. Well, at the beginning of this class, you said that he's interested in not giving a causal explanation. It seems like you're departing from the phenomenology here. He's not okay. giving descriptive notions like describe what a motive is. That's a sensible thing. Okay, I have yeah. a sensible thing to say. I think the answer to that is that when he says causal, he means what Freeman means when he says linear causal. He hears causal as the how the stuff from there bombarding me and my brain as passive receivers somehow give me a world. And he thinks that's wrong. He thinks it's circular. And he thinks I haven't stressed this. We better throw this in holistic. It's always the whole, he, he, uh, what does he call it, uh, a tractor landscape gets modified whenever I add a new experience. He, he would say that that's not, Freeman would say that's not what people normally mean by causality when they talk about the brain, and he's against the linear causality. You would say Freeman's causal equation is a good description. Is what? Is a good description. Of what? Um, you mean a description that fits with oh, the terminology? Oh, it's just perception, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's not a terminology. That's right. But it's, and it's a different kind of causality. Let me say one more thing about it, although I don't see how it fits in. It's important. Uh, it comes up in what we're reading at one point, but I'll see if I can say before we get there. Uh, no, I'll say it now, but I can't remember where why it's relevant yet. But Freeman has this interesting idea that there's a kind of causality where the global activity enslaves, this is the official word for this from the mathematicians who study it, the activity of the elements. It's, it's the whole determines the parts phenomena, which we've been describing on the perceptual level. That's the Gestalt view. What would that look like on the brain level? Well, that would look like a mathematics of how the global pattern that forms in the brain influences all the elements which are in there and any new element that comes in there. And what would that be like in the real world? Well, it's the mathematics of uh, storms, of hurricanes like. For instance, once the air gets going around in a hurricane, every other air molecule that comes into it gets, gets to be part of it and contributes to it. And apparently the mathematics was worked out for lasers. They do this to the ions. So there is a kind of top-down causality. It still takes place in the, you know, the natural world. There's a very peculiar kind of causality in which you can't explain what's going on in terms of the elements, but you can explain it in terms of the whole pattern and how that's imposed on the elements. So there are all these wonderful things going on, which I wish we knew more about. But, but it's nice to know they're there, because it, it means that Merleau-Ponty isn't just sort of ignoring or need just ignore the brain and say, and how this happens in the natural causal world. He's groping every once in a while for a view of how the brain does it, but he has no clue. So he's mostly saying, well, there's no brain account. Sometimes he goes so far as to say no brain account is possible of this. Whenever he says that, and you, when you see it, you will be surprised because it contradicts so much what I just said. I think what he really means is no brain account that he can think of or anybody can think of at his time with, his, with their math, that, which would be a linear causal account, is possible. It doesn't account for the very important things, the, the feedback, the, uh, the intentional arc, the <coughs> tendency toward maximum grip, the, the whole 
uh, determining the elements. So he sometimes says, well, we'll never get a brain, we'll never get an account of this, sometimes he says in terms of reflex physiology. Sometimes he says we'll never get an account of this in terms of linear causality in the brain. But he really wants an account of it. And, and whether he's an idealist or not, he would like to know how this stuff up here makes perception possible. He's, he's a modern person, and he'd be happy with Freeman, I think. Yeah? So talking about the causality, it's not only just, obviously not a natural world causing things in the phenomenal world, and then not even the phenomenal world causing things in the natural world, but kind of back and forth all the time in this flowing kind of state. Mm -hmm. It's both directions all right, the time. Right, right. Yes. see that. Yes. And, but it's still causality. Yes. Right. Only, I think, when he says, you know, he's against causality, he means linear, Cartesian, uh, transmitter, receiver causality. Uh, okay? I mean, I'm ready to go back to this. But uh, that was not wasted, and it all would have come up sooner or later in this connection, so I am very, perfectly fine it comes up now. So, where are we? We just got, uh, again, another repetition of the of the view that he's against I'd, on, on 86. I'll just read it because it sort of sums up again the view at the bottom of 86. Even the presence or absence of a perception are not de facto, and this is now the other view. And then he, here's his answer to the Cartesian passage I read before about the receiving receiver story. Even the presence or absence of a perception are not de facto effects of the situation outside the organism, but represent the way in which it meets stimulation and is related to it. This is the attunement story. And excitation is not perceived when it strikes a sensory organ which is not attuned to it. The function of the organism in receiving stimuli is, so to speak, to conceive a certain form of excitation. The psychophysical event is therefore no longer of the type of worldly causality. The brain becomes the seat of a process of patterning. That's the top gets to the top of 87. So that's sort of what I was just saying. I mean, that's the other story, which is still a natural story, naturalist story, and still a causal story, but it's not what he calls worldly causality. That's what I, that's what Freeman calls linear causality. And it's, and notice the brain and thereby the organism getting in the right way to receive the stimulus, that's tied up with this attempt to get a maximum grip. It's fundamental that the organism is always actively involved in the world trying to do something, namely get, it, get a better grip on it. And that's how come the stimulus gets patterned the way it gets patterned. That's the, the picture he's got, which is neat. Okay, onward. Uh, now I have to catch up because I'm, I have now given you what I was got here about Freeman. I have to see if I need to say anything more or if I said it okay. Uh, now I, I wrote about uh, lasers and ions and storms and water drops, uh, chaotic systems. Uh, Dynamic, dynamic systems, attractors, what all this, whatever this all means, uh, and Merleau-Ponty says this can't be done in third-person brain science on 87, uh, where uh, starting, right, we'll skip a few sentences and then I'm going to read more again. Now we're going back from the brain story to see how it fits the uh, perception soil. He's sort of in a middle story. No, I don't know which it is. It's trying to find this level in which you can talk about it either way. The excitation 
is seized and reorganized by transversal functions. That would be this tractor landscape business, which makes it resemble the perception which it is about to arouse. That means that what? That the organism is getting into a landscape in which there are attractors of the sort that carrots and celery and so forth are uh, sort of encoded or whatever, and it's going to and it's going to go into one of them, and it's getting ready to go into one of them. That's that's the picture, which intervenes before the cortical stage. It comes and then see and which from the moment the nervous system comes into play confuses the relations of stimulus to organism. Well, that means as soon as something hits the rabbit, it goes into this burst of chaotic activity that's already got these attractors in it, and then it's ready to receive what's out there. The excitation is seized and reorganized by the transverse functions which make it resemble and so forth. Now I'm still going to read because all this is sort of some, is his version of what I just said. I cannot envisage this form which is traced out in the nervous system, this exhibiting of a structure as a set of processes in the third person. Well, you see, that's the, it makes it sound like, well, there is no way to talk about this in terms of uh, nature and causal forces and energy hitting organisms. So he's cautious there. He what? says I cannot envisage. He's That's being right. Cautious. That's good. He's right. He's being cautious. Yeah, at least. But but I want to say too. I mean, or or I was going to read it in another way. But it come, we can read it either way. As a set of processes in the third person, I think he means nobody can do that because I think by third person he's got linear. He means linear causality where significance isn't in it. And remember, he's going to say later you can't understand what's going on in perception or the brain without bringing in at the ground floor its significance for an organism that's seeking something. And that's why you can't have a third person account of this. That's very important. So, so one way, would it be correct for Freeman, at least in Rolopointe, to say we have to understand the rabbit as a rabbit looking for food? And Absolutely. Not, and so there's a sense in which you can understand it from the first person perspective of the rabbit. As, as he says as much yeah. in the part we read. You can't understand the phantom limb, he says, but, uh, but in general, maybe I was back, I, no, maybe in the quicker mechanism part but only not because of the quicker mechanism. Some place he says you can't do it in the third person. You've got to, in a, in a sense, empathize with the organism to be able to make sense of it. Where it's in our reading for this time. Well, so it says third person on that page, 87. Yeah, but there's a place where he says you've got to do it in the first person. Maybe it's right there. Let me go on and see. Uh, so, so as transmission movement, you can't do it in the third person as the transmission of a movement or as a demarcation of one variable by another. That's, I mean, that's back to Alva's question. You, you, if you were looking for that, you think that he hasn't explained anything. But he says we, can, we don't need that. I cannot gain a removed knowledge of it. I guess this is the very thing where he's saying it, right, Rick? You've got to, be, you've got to do a first person version. Insofar as I guess what it may be, it is by abandoning the body as an object, parts outside of parts, and by going back to the body which I experience. Yes, you really have to sort of empathize with the rabbit, right? Going back to... It's worth noting, this is a footnote, that I'm quite certain that all of Walter Freeman's rabbits with those electrodes in their brains 
Oh, yes, they were, because they were very hungry. We don't want to talk about that. They were hungry and stuffed down. No, I don't think. He's, he's pretty ecological, and he was in charge of animal experiments. I, he's got a, I, I know you've got a problem, but you can't, it wouldn't work for him if the, if the rabbit weren't at least sniffing around. But you're probably right, it's, it's sniffing around and restrained. And it's very important to say that, and that's a kind of Gibsonian point, but I think he thinks that you get enough of the rabbit's active sniffing. The question is how much it's moving around. I agree with you. I don't know. I mean, I agree it's pretty hard to move around with uh, an array of 12 by 12 uh, uh, needles in the olfactory part of your brain, which is where, where the rabbit, and each one of them hooked up a wire to a, to a complicated computer stuff. So, so it'd probably be better if we could get if, if we could find out how it would do it without that. But if it forms an attractor when it's sniffing and hungry and, and, and comes across carrots, I mean that until we proved otherwise, we better assume that it would do the same thing even if it were running around. But all this is true. And if he were doing perception or action instead of form instead of categorizing of uh, stuff. He certainly has to, maybe that's why he can't do it. I mean, he's always saying, of course, the limbic system comes in here and it's very important and that's how the animal is moving around and it has its own attractors, but he can't study them. He doesn't say, I can't study them. And when he's talking, he's got his hands full studying the rabbit all his life. But you're right. The only question I'm asking you is sort of, we don't know, I mean, the significance of the fact that the poor rabbit can't move very much. Well, you might think cremation shows that it doesn't need to move. It's all in the grass. Well, no, no, because it never said that it was moving. It, it was seeking, and that doesn't mean moving. It can be sniffing, trying to get, sniff the eating the molecules in the air instead of the, you know, enemy molecules in the air. That's all. You need, it, it needs to be seeking. And, uh, okay. Good, hard questions. Okay, let me go back to reading this. I cannot have a removed knowledge of it. It's a very interesting, weird view here. It's, it, as Rick says, you've got to sort of empathize with uh, the organism well, to I, talk I, about I don't it. Think that's the point. It, so it, it's tricky because Freeman is doing science from a third person point of view. It's just a different kind of science, which is recognizing the gestalt, where we're, we're treating the rabbit as a rabbit and not as parts outside of parts, not as just That's right. a bunch of, right. you know, parts stuck but together. Let me just add a footnote quick. Recognizing the gestalt as significant to what you're seeking. That's a very important part of it. That, I mean, that's why it isn't just third person. You need to get at the level of the rabbit, I guess. That's the right. The I mean, level of it's, searching and it's the, You've got to understand the organism in its active, involved, seeking what it needs and what is significant to them. And not as, not, and, you know, the body as an organism and not the body as a mechanistic. Yeah, right. Not, and, and that's, that, so let's, I mean, we're going, this is all the right stuff we're talking about, so let's go on. Uh, so it isn't the transmission of a movement or the determination of one variable by another, well that, to say the least. But now comes this harder part. I cannot gain a removed knowledge of it. In so far as I guess what it may be, it is by abandoning the body as an object and by going back to the body which I experience at this moment. See, that's when you're trying to figure out the rabbit by understanding your own body. In the manner, for example, in which my hand, and now we're going to do it from sort of first hand, my hand moves around the object it touches, anticipating the stimuli and itself tracing out the form which I'm about to perceive. I cannot understand the function of a living body except by enacting it myself. Well, that's pretty extreme. I mean, that's what I thought it said. That is, 
any organism, any living organism, if you can't understand it, if you don't think of it as teleological, as seeking, and so forth. That's what the really Cartesian mechanist picture was supposed to get rid of, was the teleology, was the building what, the, what it meant to the organism and what the organism was seeking into the causal explanation. That's what, that's, that's, that would be very satisfying. But, yeah. Which is the language that indicates teleology? Oh, I think it's uh, uh, it's tracing out the form I'm about to perceive. That is, that's in effect what I'm reaching for when and I'm Husserl reaching for the could have said that. Husserl could have said that. Well, I'm not saying that Husserl didn't say this. Well, we too many fronts to, to, to discuss on at the same time. We're discussing, I mean, I don't think he thinks that he's got a completely new version of the phenomena. I don't have to think about that. I'm, this is supposed to be how to do brain science. And you can't do brain science, let's do one thing at a time, without, in effect, emphasizing, the, emphasizing with the organism the way you do when you are reaching for something. And remember, when you're reaching for something, it's already there directing your behavior. In the background of this talk is always, don't forget, that your hand is at the doorknob as soon as you get up to leave the room, or as soon as you get ready to get your coffee. The, your hand is starting to take account of where on the cup the handle is, behind the cup or in front of the cup, on the right side of the cup or the left, or maybe it hasn't got a handle. You, the, 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 the activity is ahead of itself. Your, whole, your body is not sort of waiting to get to the cup to deal with how to pick it up. It's already, in a sense, picking it up. That's just being magically at the door. Uh, and you, you know that if you think about it, then that's the phenomenology part. And moreover, whatever it is that goes on in the brain, you better be able to account for that. And it means you're not just taking in data from the cup and then processing an image of the cup and then adding the fact that it's got it's something to drink and then finding where your arm is in objective space. I'm just telling the computer, uh, the AI story, and then bringing your arm in objective space over to the cup in objective space. That's how cognitivism thinks about it, that has always failed. Nobody's ever been able to do it. So we can contrast a, an approach to the organism as in some sense holistic, with circular causality and top-down influences, a gestalt, a form, a unity, versus a more atomistic conception, bottom-up causation, all linear causation. But you can, you can fully start those two pictures Without mentioning empathy or teleology, you think so? Was, yeah, he thinks he thinks that uh, spelling out the story of how it's already getting set up, for getting how about see the term like attuned, that the sense organs and also the reaching and stuff is attuned to the object that it's reaching for. Don't you have to bring in first person in teleology to talk that kind of attuned language? No, you can take a third person perspective and simply view the organism as coupled to its environment in some other way. Well, coupled to its environment. The attunement is not an experience of attunement. Yeah. He's talking about the sensory receptor there right. in those passages about attunement. Right. And that means uh, it has to be, uh, attention has to be focused on something and, it has, and the eye has to move to look at the something, even if you're not consciously trying to do it, the organism is, and I'm not sure now which way to put it, whether we're disagreeing or not, the organism is moving to get this optimal grip. 
Isn't that a teleological explanation if you say the only way to explain how that organism is moving is that it has the goal of getting an optimal grip and only in terms of that goal and what will achieve that goal can you understand what the organism is doing now? Oh, all right? That would be teleological. Yeah. I don't see Bill Pagy saying anything like that in these passages. Ah, well, it may not be in these passages, although I think it is. It's certainly in the book, but why isn't it in these passages? Let, let me, okay, let's see if it is by going on. But keep your eye open. But I, I'll, put, I'll bet on this that if it isn't in these passages, it's a lot of other places. But it'll be in these passages because it'll explain why, for instance, the guy with no leg get, uh, get, tries to get up and walk towards the door or and so forth. It's going to be because the door is summoning him to talk in like this chapter to do that. That's a pretty weird way of talking. That's, so let's go on with that. Um, let's see now. Well, well, well. Merleau-Fonty says it can't be done in the third person, but Merleau-Fonty would still call Freeman. So, so a third-person account. I think Alva summed this up pretty well, and I'll just read it again. It, the account the account he's against is not holistic, but in terms of elements and bottom-up, it's linear. It's in terms of something in there transmitted to. Uh, passively received by the brain and it doesn't take into account the significance of the input for the organism and how that gets picked up. Those, those are his objections. Now I've written here about attractors but I think I've said all that just a second. Yes. Okay, so now he says the test case of this is going to be the phantom limb. So then he goes on and starts talking about that. That's where he says, uh, well, by the way, you, you realize, let me just, it's so hard to, to not, not tell you where he's off doing, saying this isn't the case. So let me just go on for a second. He wants to say the soul spreads over all the parts and behavior overspills the central sector. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, Descartes tried to get rid of. This is back to Aristotle. It looks like some kind of teleology that the goal is going to be the only way to explain the behavior, I think. And it looks like the soul is, is the form of the body, where Aristotle said. It's not the special final stage in the input where, you turn, where it finally gets translated into consciousness and... and and perception. So the soul is going to spread all over the body. Uh, but now, be careful here. One might object that this bodily experience is itself a representation, a psychic fact, and so forth. Now, sometimes he's the one doing the objecting and saying, but, but here, this one is Descartes. Uh, this is not Merleau-Parti's group. One might object that the body experience is a representation, a psychic fact, and that as such is the end of a chain. You see that you recognize now it's the same thing as the earlier, of physical and physiological events, which alone can be ascribed to the real body. It's not my body exact is not my body exactly as the external body is an ob a body which acts on receptors and finally gives us the consciousness of the body. And it's worth reading again and again, because that's what we all think. It's such a pervasive view. That's why Walter Freeman is either the great genius of the 21st century who will be recognized later or just a kook 
which is what practically everybody thinks because his view of this brain story is just utterly different than what we're reading here. Is there, now, is there not an interoceptivity just as there is an exterioceptivity? Cannot I find in the body, this is still Descartes, the body message wires sent from the internal organs to the brain? You know, Descartes discovered what he called the, the tiny fibers of the optic nerve. And he discovered the nerves going from the stump to the brain and understood that the phantom limb was because that nerve was still sending impulses and so forth. This, this Cartesian picture is, is brilliant. And it's just over through the Aristotelian picture completely. So can I find in my body message wires sent by the internal organs to the brain? Cannot I find? Right, this is all Descartes. Uh, which are installed by nature to provide the soul, which is not all over the body, but just the pineal gland, uh, with the opportunity of feeling its body, consciousness of the body, and the soul are thus repressed. The body becomes the highly polished machine in which the ambiguous notion of behavior makes us, uh, nearly makes us forget. Well, that's, I mean, I hope it helps. That's the view that you're supposed to try to get yourself free of. And, uh, <coughs> And now comes, finally, the phantom limb example, 188. What has modern psychology to say to this? Well, he's got to, what he's going to tell you now, it took me years to unscramble this, and I've only unscrambled it up to the place where I told you to start skipping things, because at that point I can't understand it anymore. Uh, but uh, but in, to begin with, it's pretty easy to unscramble. It's the usual thing. He's going to give us an intellectual, uh, 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 a mentalistic, and a mechanistic account of the phantom limb. And he's going to show you that neither one of them work. And then he's going to say there has to be some third thing, he says. And then he's going to give you his, his existentialist account of the phantom limb. That's the, always the structure you've got to keep in mind in Merleau-Ponty. It's let's try the mechanical empiricist version. Just doesn't account for the phenomena. And maybe it's even incoherent. Let's try the mentalist account, the intellectualist, the cognizant account of the phenomena. It doesn't account for certain things. It's probably also incoherent. In this part, he's not worrying about whether they're incoherent. That was earlier. That was when he was doing philosophy. Right now, he just wants to say, if you look at the empirical work on phantom limb, you can see that the mechanistic story, people only could tell at best half the story, and the mental people another piece of the story, but they can, none of them can get the whole, how it can do all the, how it can have all the funny effects that it does. So first goes the mechanistic one on 88. What is modern physiology to say? Well, it turns out that anesthesia with cocaine does not do away with the phantom limb. And now we've got a problem uh, already. Uh, that would have been the simple mechanistic answer. I mean, if Descartes is right, that the phantom limb is simply that the brain is getting impulses from the nerve that it normally gets when you've got a leg, and it normally represents the body as having a leg because it got those impulses, and it's still getting them, then it's still representing the leg, and you anesthetize the nerve, you just numb it, it isn't sending any impulses, why doesn't the leg go away? That's the first objection. And uh, then we don't understand either why the limb retains the position so that uh, uh, whatever this is, somehow the phantom arm has, to, has something to do with uh, 
where it got stuck, so to speak, and it retains that position. Why is that? Is it getting, even when, I mean, is it getting from the nerve uh, the, an account of exactly where it was when it was hit? Maybe it is. But if it is, then why couldn't you just get rid of it from getting, if you got rid of the nerve? Well, it seems it depends on emotions. Now he flips over to the mental side. It depends on psychic determinations. I'm in the middle of ADA. An emotion, emotion, circumstance which recalls those in which the wound is received creates a phantom limb in subjects who had none. Well, boy, there's no simple Cartesian account of that one. I mean, why is that? Either, well, either the impulses are coming in from the nerve or they aren't. And when they are, you've got a limb, and when it, you don't, you don't. How do, well, what, why would it, how you feel about it make any difference? So, well, it looks like there must be some central thing going on some psychic thing and it, then it looks like uh, you can even have a kind of psycho yeah a, a, a psychological account a, a psychotherapy kind of, what do you want to say a psychoanalytical account practically of it uh, it, it turns out that it's the people who refuse to recognize their lack of limb at the bottom of ADA whose phantom limb doesn't go away. So he says, must we then conclude that the phantom limb is a memory, a volition, a belief, and failing any physiological explanation, provide a psychological one? Well, that's not going to work either. And now let me see if I can tell you. I'll go back and read it in a second, but that'd be nice to be able to say it. Uh, oh yeah, cutting the nerve does make the limb go away in some people at least some of the time. So then it doesn't look like it's an inner psychological thing, whether they, want, whether they refuse to believe they've lost their limb or not. You can make it go away. So temporarily, uh, he says that no psychological explanation can overlook the fact that the severance of the nerves to the brain abolishes the phantom limb. I think he says later it comes back. At least, in fact, it does, because it would be nice if you could cure these poor people who have these pains in their non-arms and non-legs just by cutting the nerve, but you can't, because I know from reading that it'll come back again. And uh, so we need a much more complicated explanation. And now we're on, uh, let's see. Well, time changes the size of it. That's also an 83. That's got to do, presumably, with the emotional side. But it seems... And then it looks like maybe we, it's, an, it's a question of uh, our beliefs about it. I just read that. Uh, and now comes the part where it gets really important. How can we put the two together? We don't seem to be able to figure it out on the mechanistic category or description of nerve impulses. We don't seem to be able to figure it out on the psychological description of what one believes and accepts and thinks about their, whether they've got a limb or not. And then he, he wants to say, uh, that's a big problem on, on 89. What, I'm going to read a lot. What has to be understood then is how the psychic determining factors and the physiological conditions gear into each other. He's, this is the third thing he's getting at now. He needs a third understanding of being, he says at one place. And he, we're not going to do it in terms of the mechanical uh, impulses uh, of the in itself, the merely physical. 
and we can't do it in terms of the mental uh, content, the intentionality, the beliefs, which is merely mental. And not only do we can't get it either way, but we can't get the two together to get it without introducing an entirely different description, which in the light of the discussion Alvin and I just had, is a kind of existential teleological description. It's going to be in, about how the organism is always set to move around in and deal with the world. And, and, and that's, he hasn't got there yet. And so he says, what has to be understood is how the psychic determining factors and physiological conditions steer into each other. It's not clear how the imaginary limb is dependent on physiological conditions and as a result of third-person causality can be in another context dependent on the, pre, on, the, on the emotions and volitions and so forth of the individual. And there's no place these two things can come together. Uh, then a little further down, uh, he can't, so you can't get together the in itself and the cogitationes, that's the mental stuff, the for itself. A hybrid theory of the phantom limb which finds a place is, is obscure. Uh, he doesn't think you can make up such a story. So, it's, so the phantom limb is not something you can get from objective causality, that's this linear account. No more is it a cogito. It could be a mixture if we could only find a way of putting the two together. But, but they have no meeting point. If the third person process and the personal acts can be integrated into a kind of, it can only be put together if the third person processes and the personal acts could be integrated into a common middle term. Okay, well there we are. Looking for Merleau Ponty's got his opening now to put in the uh, missing thing. And now we get this neat move to the insects, uh, which uh, he goes on a lot about in the structure of behavior. But happily here, when he's talking about the structure of behavior, as he is at the bottom of 89 and the top of 90, he tells you the story again that he told there, which is so neat. I have no idea whether it's true, but it, it should be true, given his view. And that is that there's got to be a level of engaged activity and readiness and seeking significance coming from the organism. And that's more fundamental and, and, and sort of, well, it's the global thing that determines what happens in the specific parts. And his example of it is that if you suppose if you tie up the leg of an insect, it keeps struggling to get the leg untied. But if you cut off the leg, and it's no more in the body image of the insect, he thinks, then the insect will just use another leg. Uh, and that's because what's really important is that the insect is trying to reach for something. It's a little hard to see it with insects. Think of a little higher up the scale, like lizards or something. I mean, it, it's, when it's trying to grab something, and if you, if you stop it, it'll struggle to get its leg back. But if you just get its leg one leg out of the system, then the whole thing just readapts and it uses the other leg. Because what it's really doing is, it's doing whatever it can do to get what it wants. It's trying to get the optimal grip and it doesn't care whether it's getting the optimal grip with its left leg or its right leg or its mouth. It will get the optimal grip however way it can. Apparently, I just realized Charles Taylor talks about this in his own way in his book, The Explanation of Behavior that what the behaviors didn't take account of 
is that when an animal presses the lever to get the food, it's not really funny. Taylor, Taylor translates all this into analytic in that book. But he says that if you, the behaviors have to say that the animal gets conditioned to reproduce the same behavior, where behavior has to be a certain motion of the, of the organism. But in fact, the animal doesn't get conditioned to produce a certain behavior because it can, can reach the knob that gets the food in various ways. And if you hamper it with one, it can reach the knob with, another, with the other paw. That's not behavior. That's not movement. That's comportment. That's action. The animal has a goal and it, and it goes after it with whatever means it's got. And that's... I mean, Charles Taylor's book helped bring down behaviorism. and it would have brought it down completely if Chomsky hadn't, in the meantime, shot it down. And it was this kind of argument that did it. Okay, let's go back to this. We have always, we met elsewhere the case of substitution, and that's the insect, skipping about five lines down. The insect simply continues to belong to the same world and move in it with all its powers. That's what I was just saying. The tied limb isn't replaced by the free one because it continues to count in the insect scheme and because the current of activity which flows towards the world still passes through it. Now, that's just one, I'll show you a lot of them. There is this constant stuff with these metaphors. It's not hard, it's hard to know what in the world to take this as. The current of activity. What that means is that somehow the, I don't know, the energy in the nerves is already teleologically set to get what the insect wants, that's what it means to say that, uh, the, that there's a current of activity that flows toward the world. It's, it's what is sort of setting up the current of activity that flows toward the world is a metaphor for whatever it is in the nervous system which is like that the, the door is already calling the hand to get the right shape for the doorknob. It's, it's the current of activity. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> it's the response. So the, the, whatever it is the insect's trying to do, or we're trying to do to open the door, calls forth this kind of activity. And that's, and you have to understand this activity as called forth by the world and there's all this funny metaphor the current of activity which flows towards the world so he says later somewhere I think I'll find it when we get there that there's this this current of existence which flows down the nerve I mean talk about weirdness you see I mean it's almost I mean talk I and mean, trying to get things together that you don't understand how they could be got together how can a current of existence flow down a nerve well what he's trying to say is that the impulses in the nerve are the way they are because it's a response to the solicitation of the object by an organism that's seeking an, an optimal grip. And therefore, this nerve current already means this is where I can get a better grip. It's, uh, we'll see them again and again. It's optimal grip is, as I want to try to show you in the background. There is this instance, no more choice than in the case of a drop of oil. Oh yeah, now we're going to get this business of uh, tendency toward some kind of optimal, which reduces it uh, some kind of disequilibrium 
and produces an equilibrium. I'm saying it in this very abstract way in order to cover oil drops on the one hand and insects on the other. Uh, the, the, the main sort of level of description he's getting from the Gestaltists is that there is this tendency to some kind of optimal in, in for the Gestaltists it's going to be some least energy organization of the field for the animal it's going to be getting a grip on what it's seeking and that tendency is uh, pulling it to do this is leading it or causing I guess causing it in this kind of teleological way that tendency to get this optimal grip is causing it to do what it does the way the tendency to lower its energy causes the soap bubble to take the, the shape of a sphere even though it hasn't got any conscious goal of wanting to be a sphere that's not linear causality either he thinks the gestaltists think that's a, that tendency toward least energy is always teleological it's because there is some <coughs> bottom to an attractor an attractor always is least has a least energy level that the organism moves toward getting to the bottom of that attractor which would mean getting rid of the tension getting whatever it's trying to get that's what he's talking about here I mean now he starts with the oil drop so the oil drop solves in practical terms the maximum minimum problem which confronts it it wants to use the least energy so it gets to be round the difference between the drop of oil adapts itself to given external forces oh yeah and the oil drop does it in a gravitational field and it does it because there are the electrical forces between the particles but the animal does it which uh, because it projects the norms of its environment and it and it lay is projects the norms of its on its environment I mean, it, it gives the norms to the environment and lays down the terms of its vital problem so whereas the problem for the oil drop is just get the least energy the problem for the organism is say get something to eat but then the same thing occurs that you're that it hasn't got something to eat there's a tension away uh, that pulls it toward getting something to eat when a carrot shows up the carrot says eat me solicits it to uh, go feed it to lower the tension it's behaving like an oil drop that uh, but it's but it's its current needs are determining what it will do to lower the tension well so he says what is found behind the phenomenon of substitution is the impulse of being in the world now the impulse of being in the world is this name is in him is always the name of seeking the, op the maximum grip it says that there is always some engaged activity which is involved in some in dealing with something whose significance is that it's not as optimal as it could be and who and who is moving toward uh, an optimal that's that's all built in there um, and so there's an open situation if you drop it down to about 10 lines from the bottom that requires the animals movements so there's all this talk about the the attractiveness of the carrot causes the animals movements that's the teleological way of talking about it it's not something in the organism that, that alone that causes it 
but it's always going to be understood as what it's seeking and needing and what will and that's that's the the story of um, and it's got to be like completing a gestalt so it's like the first notes of a melody require a certain kind of resolution that's the talk of requiring of, of disequilibrium of tension of getting an equilibrium that's all both I mean this is important to say both phenomenological perceptual talk about what it feels like to be an organism and you can check it on in yourself responding to the the door needing to be opened if you're in a room and you're trying to get out and attracting you to do it and it's a level in which the brain is supposed to be if you have a Walter Freeman like brain story also described tensions of basins of attraction movement toward least energy and that's supposed to go cover both and so let's see so on 91 about five lines down the reflexes are never blind processes they adjust themselves to a direction of the situation express our orientation toward the behavioral setting they trace out from a distance the structure of the object without waiting for its point-to-point -point stimulation they do that because it's gone into an attractor landscape if, if you talk Freeman it is this global presence of the situation which gives a meaning to the partial stimuli this is the top-down whole part sort it causes them to acquire importance value and existence for the organism now let me read my notes about this um, you complete the whole pattern you lower the tension and oh yeah I said and, and remember Homer the arms in Homer did I ever say this about the way Homer describes the the, the, the warriors at a dinner party I might have no I mean, my favorite thing Homer understood this uh, and, and Greek gives him a way of saying it apparently in the middle voice when he says I did not say this I may have said in office hours that when the, when the warrior the hungry warriors sit down to dinner their arms went out to the food in front of them that's great that's pure Merleau-Ponty because he isn't saying as agents they reach for the food and he isn't saying that they were just mechanisms their arms went out the way if you hit your knee with the thing your foot goes up it wasn't a reflex their, their body felt the tension to complete the gestalt which was in their case being hungry with good food in front of them grasp the food and so Homer's just doing phenomenology doing it right and uh, but it sounds so weird we don't say that uh, unless you're Merleau-Ponty or, or Gibson uh, you want to say something Alan? Yes. Uh, okay so let's see where we are still so So the, the, the we're causing them at the top of 92 for the, 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 the we give them a meaning they exist as a situation uh, and he goes back to how this is a result of our whole being an intention of our whole being our modalities of pre pre-objective view which we call being in the world this being in the world is always this again tendency toward optimal grip which makes it possible for things to solicit you to do things and then you do them in response to it all that's always in there but then he says it in these funny ways about here he's trying to make a vocabulary in which the in itself and the for itself are actually put together in a third 
way of being. And that third way of being is always moving to remove attention and reach an equilibrium, which is an optimal grip for an engaged organism seeking something. I mean, that's all in there. Uh, and that's, and then he says these weird things about eight lines from the bottom of the paragraph of 92. He says there's a certain energy in the pulsation of existence. I mean, it's weird talk. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not physical energy exactly, and it, or is it energy in the nerves, is it light energy? I mean, I don't think, I mean, he doesn't know himself how to describe it. He wants to say it's not just third-person energy. It's not first-person agency. And, and the pulsation of existence is all, is this notion of, again, responding to this tension and lowering it. And now we're going to go back to the phantom limb, he says. Good. We've got away from the, I mean, he's given you the story on the level of movement toward optimal grip. Now he's going to give it to you uh, later. But let me see where I am again. Uh, so can you read that last sentence of that paragraph? Okay, sure. I have it marked to read. It is because it is a pre-objective view that being in the world can be distinguished from every, yeah, good, from every third-person process, from every modality of the race extensa, and from every cogito, from every first-person form of knowledge, that it can affect the union of the psychic and the physiological. Exactly what I tried to say, and that's exactly what I should have read, and even wrote down, I think, to read, but didn't. Uh, so let me see where we are here. So how does that help us understand the phantom one? Well, yeah, but, but I want to catch up. Okay, we give the new category as being in the world. It solves the phantom limb problem on 94, I write. So let's see how that is and why he thinks it does. Uh, 94. Okay, I'm going to read that paragraph. This phenomenon distorted equally by physiological and psychological explanations is, however, understood in the perspective of being in the world. Okay, here we go. We're going to solve the phantom limb problem once we've got this movement toward maximum grip. What is it in us which refuses mutilation and disablement is an I am committed to a certain physical and interhuman world which continues to tend towards its world despite handicaps. Who continues? To, I am one. Who continues to tend toward his world despite handicaps and amputations and who to this extent does not recognize them the good. What that means is just get the simple phenomenon that the world, because I am a kind of person who wants to get a maximum grip, say, on cups, cups continue to look reachable to me. It's the intentional arc. I mean, it isn't as if there's a cup and I believe it's reachable, because, and then I would stop believing it if I didn't have any arm anymore. Let's suppose neither, I have no arm. Then the cup is reachable anymore. But I know that. I can stop believing it's reachable. The question is, why does it go on looking reachable? Well, it's because uh, it's, uh, I need to reach it. And it's calling me to reach it, because that's how it's done before when I had arms. And I still have the experience that the cup looks reachable, 
So if I had arms, I would reach it, but instead my phantom arm tries to reach it. It's even clearer with, with your legs, apparently. If, if, if somebody comes into the door that I like and want to uh, give a hug to or shake hands, but I have lost a leg, then I will just get up and try to walk toward them because they uh, solicit me to do that because they say, hug me, in effect, and I fall over. But why do I try to do it? when I know for perfectly well I haven't got any leg. Well, it's because my knowing it isn't what's important. It's that the world looks like I afford walking over and hugging them, and, I do, and my arms, my, and my body just responds to that. And then the, the next move is, I'll try to go fast, but oh, oh, time is up. Well, I'll just say one more thing, and then I'll stop. And then he says, well, it, it's, an, it's a habit in your body. It's like, and I give an example, when the electricity fails and you keep going and switching the light switches on while you're looking for your flashlight. You know perfectly well that there's no electricity, but your body doesn't know it. It's before it's turning on. So then he, that's the, and then he asks the psychological question, well, if it's like a habit, why don't I just finally outgrow it? And some people do. I mean, after enough light switches don't go on and enough cups can't be reached and you fall over enough when people come into the room, you should learn to stop doing that. And what would happen if you did? Cups wouldn't look reachable anymore. People wouldn't look walkable to anymore. Light switches wouldn't look like they would turn on the light anymore. And your phantom limb would go away. But he wants to know, in some people that doesn't happen. Why not? Then he has this whole incomprehensible psychoanalytical story about why not. And I'm not going to go into it. I think I can just say we can go on next time for the next reading. I, I'll check and see if I've covered everything I have to cover.